0: Hey there. Servus. My name is Sean Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have today? Well, today we're going to talk about the diplomatic moves being made in the wake of Afghanistan's civil war ending. Um, we talked about that a little bit, but we're going a bit further beyond now. Uh, We're talking about the cutting of ties between Morocco and Algeria and China as a colonial empire. All that and more coming up. to the rapid fire news so a series of bombings uh, namely suicide bombings have rocked Kabul's international airport uh as of right now and the numbers may be higher uh 13 US troops have been killed over 170 Afghan civilians were killed and 200 over 200 were injured um I think these are close to the final numbers, but they keep going up. The military at one point even welded the doors to the airport shut. So I'm assuming that if they're continuing the evacuation now, they must have forced them back open or just used a different entrance. But it was a pretty big mess that happened. And it was uh, playing out over the course of the week. Uh, as the numbers kept coming in, lots of talk about ISIS-K. Uh, apparently, the Taliban arrested some of them. Uh, we don't know entirely. The situation in Afghanistan is pretty chaotic. But it does seem like the Taliban is making a considerable effort to go from being a fighting force... To a governing and policing force and that was one of the developments I said we have to look out for and sort of observe as it happened and that seems to be exactly what's going on now the civil war is over and now they have to make that transition so we're seeing sort of the early stages of them doing just that and they're reaching out diplomatically uh, so and we'll get in a little bit more into that later but uh the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan he, he, uh, said that 28 of its members were killed in that same blast. And we're talking about the suicide bombings in the airport. They, the Islamic Emirate says that 28 of their people were caught up in the blast. And they're upset by, at ISIS-K. So that may be the reason that they're willing to crack down on them. But uh, very interesting things in the birth of this new emirate. We'll see what they do moving forward. Uh, it'll be very easy because everyone's attention is on Afghanistan now. So I won't have to look too hard for that. But just across the border, Iran has appointed a new head of their nuclear agency. And that's probably sent the Israelis into a even greater frenzy than they're already in right now especially as they're still preoccupied with Palestine, although, although, there has been a meeting uh, between the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, and Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz. They held a meeting in Ramallah, uh, which is a city in the West Bank. So, I assume that This is sort of a prelude to, if not the beginning of, peace talks, or at the very least, discussions on how to proceed with peace talks in the future. Um, But there is talking between Israel and Palestine now, uh, the governments of them. They're still fighting, mind you, and there's still bombing and airstrikes going on, but there is talking now too, so... We could see this round of fighting between Israel and Palestine start coming to a close, uh, at least for the time being. It'll probably resurface again in the future until one of them wins. But for the time being, it seems like this bout of fighting is about to come to an end, which will free Israel's hand to do more in their neighborhood whenever they get around to making this peace, because it still hasn't been made yet. So they're still tied down at the same time Iran is moving forward with their nuclear agency probably for civilian power, probably for a weapon, but again you gotta focus on delivery systems rather than just the weapon because you can have an atomic bomb but if you don't have a nuclear capable bomber or a missile with the lift capacity to get it to where you want it, well it's really just a sitting duck it's a bigger danger to you than anyone else But, I imagine that isn't exactly going to be overlooked forever, so, major developments anyway. The U.S. administration, uh, in light of the Afghanistan debacle, uh, our officials continue their denial towards the rapid deterioration of our specific situation in Afghanistan, which is that we have thousands of people still stranded, and... Very little is being done on the part of the government to get them out. I know there's private efforts. I know what was it, Glenn Beck, he flew to the Middle East and he's organizing... Um, uh, he's organizing... What can I say? An evacuation effort on the part of Christians and American citizens who are stuck in Afghanistan. And he's getting people out. So good on him. But meanwhile... The U.S. administration is faltering. Very, very faltering. Very hard. Uh, and the backlash on President Biden uh, keeps getting worse. It keeps getting worse. I believe articles of impeachment have already been filed against him. Um, I think he's going to get 25th Amendmented. Uh, that's what I think. All right. Fully believe that that's what's going to happen if they don't impeach and convict him. Which I don't think that they'll go through with the conviction part as much as I think they'll go the 25th Amendment route. But that's home news. Um, I guess another piece of home news is that we got... The South is getting smacked in the face with a hurricane right now. Hurricane Ida. Um, So... I guess hurricane season has officially begun, so yippee-ki-hey, not very fun, but it's begun, you know, Uh, luckily for me, I I live in the north, so we, we don't get those problems, we just get the occasional tornado siren, and no tornado shows up, but we get storms, we get storms, but uh, Oh, speaking of storms, I should probably expect rain from those hurricanes as that moves up there, but less about me All right, less about me and we're gonna hop back over to the side of the world where all the action is happening um, There has been a border skirmish between Pakistan and the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan that resulted in two Pakistani soldiers dying so pretty tense uh, I imagine that's not gonna do any favors to anybody um, it's definitely not going to do favors towards the relations between the two countries um, but I do think that in spite of this there will be moves made for cordial relations between Pakistan and the Islamic Emirate um, this is sort of probably going to be a bump in the road I don't imagine Pakistan's going to be looking for new enemies right now when they have India to deal with still, um, they certainly don't want to get outflanked by mountain people (laughs) with all, mountain people with a plethora of U.S. made equipment, yeah, I, I remember, there was a, there was a whole roast session in my little group chat with my friends, where we were talking about how they just left all this equipment to the Taliban. Now they have more choppers than the rest of the world. <laughs> they got more choppers than 95% of the world. Only, only the greatest of powers. Russia, China, America. Only India has more helicopters than they do. They got 600,000 rifles. They got a whole First World Army. So I'm sure. I'm sure Pakistan does it exactly. Want them as an enemy right now, you know, if they're paying attention to all that, you know, which I'd assume that they are, but you, I can never, I can never assume things with political leaders. Any, (laughs) but Taliban battle hardened, and and now they have all the new toys of modern warfare. So Afghanistan is going to be a regional power now. Now that I think about it, Uh, or at the very least the taliban's gonna have an easy time policing their borders with all that equipment so and i guess this is an indication of that two pakistani soldiers got shot and killed and as far as we know there are no deaths on the taliban side of that skirmish the taliban has become a potent force internationally now regionally but still internationally Meanwhile, uh, while we're still talking about the Islamic Emirate, they have requested, interestingly enough, they've requested that the United States maintain its diplomatic presence in Afghanistan. Um, some say it's because they want international legitimacy. Uh, I say that it's just because they want to bury the hatchet as soon as possible uh, and get the Americans to leave Uh, yeah, that's a lot of things going on here. Because like I said, all the neighbors of the Islamic Emirate that matter, because this is a landlocked country, so all the neighbors that matter effectively recognize them already. That's Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan. They're recognized by all the people that they need to be recognized by. Um, All the people that could actually do something to them Aside from the United States. So I guess what this is is an attempt to sort of get the United States to recognize them. And I guess that would complete the list of countries that the Taliban would actually need recognition from. If you could say that they needed recognition from the United States. Because as far as I'm concerned, they probably don't really care about whether or not the United States recognizes them I'm pretty sure they don't really care too much about what the Americans think about them given that they just uh, kicked us out of their country effectively but I imagine there's strategic calculus in having the recognition of the United States as well as all of your neighbors including Russia and China that would say okay well if all of the great powers recognize us, then guess what? We're recognized. And there's nothing you can do about that. Because if the United States does recognize them, it'll probably lead to a cascade effect of other countries who were previously at war with Afghanistan, um, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, now recognizing the Taliban as the official government once again. So probably a geopolitical calculus in there. You know, not necessarily a need, but rather a desire, but interesting to note anyway. I thought it was very peculiar, and I felt like putting it in the episode, but that's the Islamic Emirate. Meanwhile, uh, their neighbors, specifically China, their, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, he says that the world must positively guide the Taliban uh and he said this when he was on a phone call with Anthony Blinken uh who was also in hiding from any sort of questioning along with the rest of the Biden administration so uh, it's been a it's been a pretty big blunder I'll just say that much it's been a pretty big blunder like people expected the G7 summit and the Biden Putin summit to be a blunder uh, surprisingly, that wasn't as big of a blunder as even I had expected. But this is going to send Biden straight to the 25th Amendment. Uh, and will probably result in a lot of these people getting removed from their position. In a world where we have accountability. Even the slightest semblance of accountability anyway. But um, not very good looks for all any any of the people involved. From the chain of command to our foreign, our Secretary of State, we don't have a foreign minister. That is the Secretary of State. We operate a little, you know, see America is built different, so we don't have a foreign minister, we have a Secretary of State. But uh, these uh, sentiments, however, that Chang Yi brought up, the world must positively guide the Taliban, those sentiments were shared by russia and i believe it was sergey lavrov who is basically making calls for uh, everyone to help the islamic emirate form an interim government in afghanistan so to bring stability this is a pretty sensitive topic for the russians um the stability of central asia and we've brought up how it's so sensitive that they've positioned their troops on other people's borders on afghanistan and i imagine there's serious diplomatic pressure being put on turkmenistan as well uh to get them to agree to a russian troop presence on its border unless their their troops are already there maybe i should look into that i just haven't seen any stories regarding turkmenistan but maybe just maybe the Russian troops are already there and I'm out of the loop and the Russian acquisition of Central Asia is actually complete. Now that would be something odd to look into that actually. All right. I definitely did not just pause the recording to look this up, but it seems like the Russians and the Turkmens have significant security cooperation. So that would be intelligence sharing. And basically if Russia asks the Turkmenistanis to beef up security in certain areas of their border, the Turkmens will kindly say yes, big brother Russia. And there are even unconfirmed reports that about 300 Russian troops are on Turkmenistan's border with Afghanistan. Unconfirmed but believable and if they are true then the russian reacquisition of central asia is indeed complete and these are reports from 2020 not 2021 so given the the extra emphasis on border security of the central asian states with their afghan border um. Those 300 troops might be there for realsies, unconfirmed. But there, maybe even more. And... Russia is done with Central Asia. They have it now. And that is wild. That is absolutely wild. I did not expect this to move forward so quickly. But it has. And that means that Ukraine is next Russia is going to digest the very very large acquisition that is Central Asia settle the troops in along those borders and probably along all of their borders with each other because a lot of them don't trust each other namely Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan but the Russian troops are littered throughout Central Asia all five of the former Soviet republics there So, that means that not only the Caucasus are on lockdown, but Central Asia is now on lockdown. All of it, not just all minus Turkmenistan, but all of it. And that means that when Russia is done digesting this new acquisition, Ukraine and Belarus are going to be the next on the list. Either a union state with Belarus. Or some sort of formal. uh, How do I say? Policing force. Some sort of formal peacekeepers. Quote unquote. Russian peacekeepers. Will be placed in Belarus. On Belarus's border with say Poland. Which will give Russia. De facto. Control over Belarus's border. That seems to be the. The strategy of choice. To police other people's borders as though they were your own uh, when those countries are your neighbors so you effectively push out your own territory because anybody who infringes on the borders of your neighbors have to go through your troops and if anything happens well then they're attacking russia technically and that seems to be the method of russian expansion and all of this with the consent of the people that they're placing troops on the placing troops into on the on their borders. So we might see something with Belarus or we might see something with Ukraine. Maybe we'll see something simultaneously, but those are the two countries to look out for right now. I expect that the Baltic states, that is Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania will be last on the list cuz they'll be the hardest to acquire, and they'll require all of Russia's attention if they're going to make that move. So they'll probably finish up their business in Ukraine and demolish the Ukrainian army wholesale, or they'll move forward with integrating Belarus into Russia, which won't be too hard because of the diplomatic isolation that Belarus is in with every country that they have a neighbor that they have a border with, minus Russia. Russia's their only friend right now. So integration is a matter of economic and political necessity at this point. So we could see something we could see some moves being made in Eastern Europe. That's the expectation uh for the next few months, you know, because I imagine it'll take a, a little bit Of time to digest Central Asia. Because it did take Russia a little bit of time to digest the Caucasus. Not too long, but some time to settle in. And once that's done. We will see something happen in Ukraine or Belarus. That is my official prediction. But that's Russia. Meanwhile... Um, yeah, that's that's Russia's acquisition of Central Asia. Um, but uh, they were talking, I got so far off topic, but I was talking about them echoing the sentiments of Wang Yi, who said that they should help guide the Taliban, Russia calling for an interim government in the the new Afghan leadership. But my little caveat there is That while I do think the Taliban greatly appreciates having the recognition of their rule over Afghanistan um, by all the neighbors that matter, I do not believe they want a power-sharing agreement. Uh, I do not believe that they will agree to a power-sharing agreement, let alone one brokered by foreigners, even if those foreigners are... They're friends, Russia and China. And I say friends, quote-unquote, because they're not technically friends yet, but they're friendly. So, even if it's Russia and China trying to broker this power-sharing agreement, I don't think the Taliban's going to go along. Because as far as they're concerned, they won the war, and they have no real opposition right now. What reason do they have to share power when they fought for it and won it fair and square? against a 20-year-long U.S. occupation. I don't think they're going to go with the power-sharing agreement at all. That's what I believe. But, um, that's... I do believe that is finally it for what I have on Afghanistan. Uh, So much for rapid-fire news, but we're sort of all over the place today. Um, So we'll just hop on over to France, who is deciding to keep troops in iraq Uh, and this decision was followed by french president emmanuel macron paying a visit to mosul um because it was a former stronghold of isis the first isis you know the big the big bad boy on the block not the the cheap knockoff local affiliates in (laughs) um But um, yeah, they paid a visit to Mosul and just another glimpse of that French expansionism going on right now as they're trying to expand their influence and I don't think they're competing for influence in Iraq yet, but they're not pulling their troops out and I imagine that that's eventually going to cause tension between Iran and France. So definitely something to look out for, especially with the battle for influence in full, f- uh, in full swing going on in Lebanon, between Leb, but not Lebanon, Leb- between France, Iran, and even Israel. To an extent, much lesser extent for Israel, but if Israel negotiates a peace deal with Palestine, we might see a much greater intervention in what's going on in Lebanon uh, for fear that the destabilization might breed more groups, militant groups that'll attack Israel. A very valid reasoning. So definitely got to keep our eyes out for the potential new ceasefire between Israel and Palestine as it'll have implications on what Israel will and won't be able to do for the time being. Um, But potential source of conflict between France and Iran, definitely going to pay attention to that. We might even see a coalition, a temporary coalition, between Turkey and Iran against the French, where Iran kicks France out of Iraq and Lebanon, and Turkey kicks France out of the eastern Mediterranean. We might see it. Coalitions are usually how weaker countries gang up on and beat stronger countries before turning on each other. We might see something like that happen in the future when Turkey feels its navy is stronger. But um, definitely developments to keep our eyes out for. Meanwhile, the British SAS, and that's sort of their special forces, their SAS troops have volunteered to stay in Afghanistan to avenge the deaths of the U.S. troops, those 13 U.S. troops that died in those suicide bombings. So, the British aren't necessarily leaving Afghanistan, um, and we'll see how that goes for them. Uh, Well, I guess the U.S. isn't necessarily leaving either. We have more troops there now than we did a couple months ago. So, we'll see how these things pan out. South Sudan, uh, a little bit farther away, is now on track for unifying its armed forces. Uh, These armed forces were split during their civil war um, that lasted for about five years. The president, interestingly enough, the president and the vice president were the leaders on opposing sides of that civil war. So you you can imagine just how tense that this whole thing has been. But it seems like um, very genuine moves are being made to piece the country back together in spite of such division. So, pretty good thing going on in South Sudan. Maybe they'll emerge from these divisions as a stronger nation during a time when all their neighbors are going through significant destabilization. And that could open doors for opportunity for South Sudan to expand its influence in its neighborhood. Well, let's keep our eyes on it, and I imagine we'll probably passively see them as we look at... Destabilizations in Ethiopia, or Sudan, or the fighting going on against Islamic militants in West Africa. Uh, we're talking the Mali, Nigeria, Burkina Faso area. Well, not not Nigeria, Niger, Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. That area and we might see South Sudan get involved in those sorts of conflicts, but uh, as a means of unifying their military, you know. Tactically and through leadership and experience, so we might see it. Uh, and to their south, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and that's the that's the big Congo, not the little one, the big Congo. Uh, they are seeking to review their mining deal with China. Um, and this is a pretty big mining deal. This deal is a pretty big deal, if you catch my drift, because Congo the big, the Democratic Republic of Congo is the largest producer of cobalt in the world and the largest producer of copper in Africa. So pretty big. And they're reviewing this deal on claims of it not being fair. And we'll see how China responds. Uh, and back in Central Asia, the CSTO, that is the Collective Security Treaty Organization, is currently set to hold military drills in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan from September to October. So, I guess this is sort of a deliberate attempt to get Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and on the same side on something and keep them from fighting each other, while at the same time giving the Russian military experience in fighting in both Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan in the event that they have to intervene in a fight between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Very, very sneaky. Very, very... Very slick, I'll say that. But on the other side of the Tianjin Mountains, that's the mountains between Central Asia and Western China, we have China conducting its own military drills in Tibet. To the shock and horror of India and the Tibetans. But um, I guess this is sort of a display of what China is going to be able to do in the Tibet region. Uh, Probably going to give them some insights on how far their logistical capabilities have developed in Tibet. Because these drills do... They do show you sort of what you need... And which you'll be capable of if you do them correctly. Um, so they, they can give you pretty valuable information on the capabilities of your military. So I'd imagine the Chinese are probably trying, either trying to send a message or they're trying to see uh, how far their logistics will go in Tibet. Which is pretty valuable information in the event that they have to get into a big fight with, say, India or maybe even Pakistan. You don't know. They're all fighting it out for Kashmir, but valuable information can be learned. Very somewhat easy to see geopolitical moves uh, within these drills themselves. And what more can you say? And last but not least, uh, well, actually, no, it's not last. We have Juan Guaido, uh, the claimant to the legitimate presidency of Venezuela he in his talks with maduro has made clear he wants to push up the date for elections in venezuela um maduro denies any any possibility of this happening maduro having the power right now in venezuela but um, the talks continue so i guess that's the good thing about it the talks continue But no compromise is really being reached. Uh, But good that the talks are happening anyway. Japan and Taiwan are holding security talks. uh, Which is peculiar. Because as far as I know, a lot of these countries don't actually recognize Taiwan. Uh, They recognize the People's Republic of China. But... Japan and Taiwan have held security talks. Which, if we translate that, it means they were talking mad trash about China. So, we can expect that in the event of a conflict between China and Taiwan, we might see a Japanese expeditionary force find itself on the island. Um, what they'll be able to do... They'll probably be able to kick some ass and be forced to leave before the blockade cuts them off from Japan. So, definitely something to keep an eye out for. And remember, the Japanese changed their constitution so they can go to war to defend an ally. To which we ask the question, who are Japan's allies? And the answer is, whoever the hell the Japanese say is an ally. Which may mean Taiwan. May mean that and that'll give them carte blanche to just go attacking Chinese shipping everywhere but we'll, we'll see how Conflict goes in the East China Sea China Itself has made Xi Jinping thought a part of their school curriculum So the God King Xi is asserting his control over the rest of China Uh even further than writing his name into the constitution and having a new capital built for China and his vision of it. So, hey, I guess every dynasty needs its capital. So they had, what was it? They had Nanjing. They had Jihan, I believe. They had Beijing or uh, Peking. Beijing and Peking are the same. And now they're having this new capital. Dang, I forgot the name of the new capital. But it's it's supposed to be huge in there. It's like in between Beijing and Tianjin. So it's sort of linking up actually th- two cities. I think it's linking up three. I don't know what the third city was, but it's sort of in the middle of those three cities uh, to take advantage of the airport that's already there. So... We'll see what it looks like when it's done. I imagine it'll be pretty stunning to look at. But, last but not least, for real this time, U.S. Republicans are calling for an investigation into the way we withdrew from Afghanistan. So, the Biden administration is collapsing before our eyes. So, with the rapid-fire news out of the way, we can get into the little bit of meat I have prepared. Uh, for the rest of the episode as we're already like halfway through so bear with me as we get to it in just a moment all right, we're back and now we're gonna get into some more conflict on the horizon we seem to be entering into a period where a lot of Conflicts are sort of bubbling to the surface and we can see them we, We've gotten to the point where we can sort of see them on the horizon whereas before there was still the fog of war so to speak where it looked like there was still going to be peace but now we can see conflicts arising and the potential for them in other places we talked about uh egypt and ethiopia and how egypt is buying weapons i said they are buying it like a madman and ethiopia is in the middle of a civil war ethiopia has that dam the renaissance dam it's Drying up the Nile River, and Egypt has a choice. And it appears that they've woken up, and they're gonna choose conflict. They are—they're gonna wake—they're gonna wake up one day, and they're gonna choose violence, and that's gonna catch a lot of people off guard, who are not aware of the situation between them. And there's probably conflicts in other places of the world. Where the sim- something similar will happen to me because I'm not paying attention to them. I try my damnedest, though. Uh, I can tell you that there's going to be conflict over Taiwan. I can tell you that much. Uh, I can tell you that there's a Cold War between India and China. And it's already in Indochina. It's already in South Asia. India is losing badly in South Asia. It's in the Himalayas. India's doing a bit better there. Um... And it's probably going to expand into the Middle East. India hasn't gotten to the part where it's assertive enough to go into the Middle East. But I imagine it'll expand. Their competition for influence is going to expand that way as well. Central Asia, there will sort of be a conflict competition for influence. But ultimately, Russia will have the final say over that. Because Russia controls all of the borders of the Central Asian republics there. So... The former Soviet Central Asian Republics. Because technically... Technically Afghanistan... Is a part of Central Asia. And technically Tibet and Western... Technically Tibet and Xinjiang are also Central Asia. But... They're not Russia, Central Asia. So... We can... We can sort of... Discount those. We can sort of discount those. The Taliban, I imagine... Is probably going to go along with the Belt and Road, so that's already a loss for India. And it's not like they need Indian weapons, they have American weapons. So, India's really, really on the back foot here, but they do have Japan as an ally, increasingly, Australia as an ally. And Japan and Australia are putting their way behind Taiwan, so that's technically another ally. Um, a maritime alliance, that can really hinder Chinese shipping, Uh, but China has a very large fleet, so India's still in a tight spot, even with those pretty important strategic allies to have in this showdown with China. But, um, yeah, I guess I'll get a little bit more into that later on when we talk about our final topic, which is a pretty interesting one, I gotta admit, I'm pretty proud that I took the time to write it down, because I really want to lay it out, I really want to lay it out, but conflict appears to be on the horizon, talked about the potential for it between Turkey and France over the eastern Mediterranean, and the new idea that came to my mind with the French choosing to stay in Iraq is that Turkey and Iran might form an alliance, a temporary one, to kick France out of the Middle East. France would still be heavily influential in West Africa, but together, Turkey and Iran can kick them out of the Middle East, and Russia might back them up. Russia might back them up, because Syria might easily join in on that coalition as well. Syria is a Russian ally. Iran is a Russian friend. Russia wants to be friendly with Turkey, so the interests line up. The interests line up. Uh, enough, uh, not completely, but they line up enough to where Russia might condone this, kicking out of French influence. Um, What that would mean for Lebanon, who knows? But we might see that sort of conflict, the return of coalitions to beat larger, stronger powers. Or the return of regional players deciding how regional conflicts play out. As I have brought up before, that's the sort of era we're moving back into. So, you want to understand how things used to be in the past to get a glimpse of where we are going in the future. And that might just be something we see. But one conflict I wanted to focus on, the uh, one potential one, was Algeria and Morocco. And why do I bring up? What do I, why do I bring your attention to this one specifically? Well, I'll tell you. Algeria's foreign minister said in a statement that Algeria had cut ties, all diplomatic ties, with Morocco, over hostile actions. And these hostile actions, we can reasonably assume, would be annexing West Sahara, basically. Uh, normalizing relations with Israel and apparently even allowing the Israeli foreign minister to speak poorly of Algeria during his visit to Morocco. So, three strikes, you're out. And now the two sides have begun militarizing and fortifying their shared border. So we we could see... All the outlines that say war is on the horizon, or at the very least, a very, a very stiff standoff between the two. Now, who would win? Who knows? Uh, I would say Morocco does have quite the decent chance. Uh, yeah, they have quite the decent chance. They don't exactly have any threatening neighbors. Although they would have militants in West Sahara actively undermining their war effort. So that would, that would be something that Algeria doesn't necessarily have to deal with. Unless the, the civil war in Libya were to spill over into their borders a little bit while they were distracted. So there's potential. It seems like a fairly even fight. Or at least it seems like it would be. Whether or not it would only actual fighting would say, but while those two may be relatively peer in military power, maybe not experience or equipment, but a conflict between those two, I do not believe, would remain between those two. If there were a conflict, or if they came close to conflict like very close like they started having regular border skirmishes with one another and shot down a jet of one another i would see the potential for foreign intervention specifically i see spain potentially getting involved spain is one of the countries that i have named as being sort of the forerunners of this new scramble for Africa. Um, Spain has recently gotten rather assertive over its border, uh, particularly in its provinces in Africa. Now, for those who don't know, there is a small piece of Spain just south of the Gibraltar Straits that is actually on the African continent. So... The last remnants of the Spanish colony of, well, Morocco. Spanish North Africa, it was called. But, they have a foothold in Africa for military and diplomacy. No amphibious invasion would be needed should the Spanish military be called upon to intervene in this conflict. They could just sail over or fly over. To their area in North Africa. Very small, but it's there. And move out from there. That's a pretty important logistical piece. If you don't have to invade and take the beaches. And supply your planes with ships. I mean, supply your troops by ships and planes. Um, On hostile beaches, you can just walk over. Metaphorically speaking, you can just walk over to your own part of your country and then walk out. Because Spain is a piece of its territory in Africa. So the potential is there. The assertiveness uh, of its borders is there. So if there was a fight, that could be perceived as a threat. Or at the very least, that fight could be used. Very important, it could be used to say that there is a threat to the spanish border therefore we must intervene and stop them from fighting one another and then you see spain de facto annex (laughs) uh, more territory around their port the city that they have in north africa so small acquisition but an acquisition nonetheless and they push the boundaries Now, I talked about, I wrote down my thoughts on Spain getting involved, but when I remembered that the French view Algeria, when I remembered how the French view Algeria, which is as an integral piece of France itself, just south of the Mediterranean from France, I realized that there would also be the potential for French interventionism, and the French are particularly aggressive lately with their intervention and their expansion. So, seeing them, given the way they view Algeria, uh, seeing them get involved should Algeria and Morocco get into it, uh, it's not that big of a stretch. It's not a stretch at all, really. It would almost be, I'd say, guaranteed that the French would step in and maybe even an agreement could be reached between France and Spain to carve up the territory between the two, where the Spanish quote-unquote peacekeepers occupy Morocco and West Sahara, and the French quote-unquote peacekeepers occupy, reoccupy Algeria. And they would effectively be doing the same thing that Russia's doing in its former territories but in africa rather than central asia the Caucasus, and so on and that would be huge that would that would really really be a definitive moment that i could say from that date onward we were in the new colonial era the we the scramble for africa 2.0 had officially begun i could use that as the date to say, yes, this is when it officially, undisputably began. And I do see it. I can really see it. Now, this depends on Algeria and Morocco actually getting into conflict with none another. If they remain peaceful, then this sort of stays off the table, this intervention, it stays off the table. But if they don't remain peaceful, then that intervention will be all too likely to happen. And I don't know if Morocco and Algeria themselves realize this. And even if they do, the local politics are probably trumping any worry of foreign intervention, given that people view the the conflict more... How do I say? They're going to be more caught up in the conflict between each other... And the sentiments of the people living there are going to be more aggressive towards each other. um, than they would be fear of foreigners stepping in and occupying them. So even if they are aware of that danger. It still might not stop them from following through. On the very situation that would enable that to happen to them. So conflict, and expansion evident on the horizon. So that was an interesting story that I wanted to bring, which is the deterioration of relations between Algeria and Morocco and some of the implications that might bring. But now, as we get closer to closing out today's episode, uh, we'll talk a little bit about something else. Yeah we talked a whole bunch about Afghanistan but uh uh we'll, we'll just set that aside as much as I can you know cause I did sort of lay it all on the table last episode but ah uh, I I gotta say I love it and hate it when the news cycle is clogged up with news about one story uh and one story that I've Covered already because you know I'm usually I'm usually on the mark I'm usually on the ball I feel like I can say now after a while I'm usually up there with the news story as much as I can be on my weekly basis so I've already covered Afghanistan to the best of my extent But the news is still obsessed over Afghanistan, so I have to cover it a little bit every now and then. But I do love and hate when this sort of thing happens. Uh, I hate it because it makes it harder for me to dig up other news to bring to you, again, especially after I've already covered the topic that the news cycle is being clogged up with. But I also love it because it sort of gives me the leeway to go a bit farther off topic from what everyone else is talking about, and to talk about some of the geopolitical thoughts and speculations that I do off-air. And one that I want to get into now is China as a colonial power. So let's get into this. and Maybe you'll agree with me, maybe you'll disagree with me, but here's sort of what I see. Uh, I mean, last week, we talked about how I believe the conflict between China and Taiwan would go. I talked about how I believed that China would be able to take Taiwan, and I made my case for that in last week's episode. It was at the very end, so if you didn't make it, I don't fault you. It was a really long episode, but I'll just shorten it by saying I believe China can take Taiwan, they will take Taiwan, and... I want no part in that debacle, but it seems like the rest of my country does not agree. So, we'll see how it goes. But, I laid out how I believed it would happen. So, this time around, I want I wanted to express my thoughts on what might come after. Because I view that as being the ultimately as close to inevitable reality that's going to happen and as you can get. Because nothing's necessarily inevitable. There's always the possibility something strange happens. Especially when you're talking about the future. Which no one can really predict. But you can you can make assertions to the best of your ability. And that's my assertion. China's going to be able to take Taiwan. So with that in mind, I wanted to sort of speculate. And I have uh, speculated as to what comes after me. Now staring up at that beautiful map of the world I have in my room, I looked at the region around China. What and I thought about what what does China want? What does China want? Because we know they want Taiwan. We know that they'll that they will resort to force when they feel that they're strong enough to do so. Uh, if their rhetoric and their military buildup is anything to go off of specifically their naval buildup they'll use force when they feel that they're ready and the same was probably going to be true of turkey when they feel that they are ready because countries when they feel strong enough militarily will use their military to pursue certain things that they want and you can just look at russia they're placing troops on other people's borders look at france and united states they're just all over the place (laughs) look at britain Look at Britain. They're sending warships into places in the world where the people there would really appreciate them not being, but they're there anyway. Uh, And irrespective of what is and isn't accomplished when countries do these things, it is evident that countries who have the military power and capability usually tend to use it when they feel that it suits their needs or wants. So, when China feels it's strong enough, they will use those military assets. And they'll probably use it for Taiwan first, if nothing else. But what comes after that? What does China want, in a more general sense, regarding its region? And I think that, above all, they want security. Because China is a trading nation. They trade. A lot of their trade comes by sea. Um, Even with the Belt and Road. Very strategic. Very important. But still, a lot of their trade and commerce comes by sea. Especially trade with their neighbors. Their immediate neighbors like Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines, and the countries of Southeast Asia and Indonesia. and Basically, all of RCEP and ASEAN. Trade by sea. Now, what is best for trade that comes by sea? Security. Uh, stability, preferably, but security, if nothing else. And while, yes, the United States Navy can provide that security for everyone, the United States Navy is viewed by China as a danger, not a security so, when you, view the, when you view the peacekeeper, technically, because that's what our navy is over there, when you view the peacekeeper as a danger rather than a piece of stability and security, because you and the owner of that peacekeeping force are effectively hostile towards one another, you don't view that as security. You view it as a liability. So, I feel that China, in their naval buildup, is sort of reflecting that perception. They don't view the US Navy as a force of security. but but what does that mean? Uh, it means that they don't feel secure. Now, again, we can look at the region as a whole and say, well, it's secure, and it's safe for everyone to trade. But when you look at it from the perspective of the country that's probably going to play the biggest role in East Asia moving forward, which is China, they do not feel secure with that naval presence of the United States. So then what will make them feel secure? It will make them feel secure if they have safety and freedom of navigation through their, the waters around them. But that safety and security must be underpinned by the Chinese Navy Not the United States not Britain not Germany France not Australia or Japan But China That is what will make China feel secure in the waters around China itself So while they want security everyone does the security China will seek And the security that I imagine will eventually be the reality in East Asia is going to be a security as defined by Chinese perception and Chinese perceived needs a peace underpinned by Chinese military strength and power and influence not foreigners not even Japan so when you look at that and you look at their naval buildup, And what will eventually become a conflict between them and the United States over Taiwan. Which I predict is going to be a very, very bad and humiliating defeat for the U.S. Navy. Uh, if they get too close or they stay away out of pragmatism and Taiwan falls. Which will give the Chinese Navy uh, the ability to project power out into the Philippine Sea, more into the East China Sea, and project power better into the South China Sea, it'll be a really good naval base, effectively is what Taiwan will be, a really good naval base. And from there, the Chinese Navy, the largest anywhere, which is consolidated within this relatively small Region of the world the East China Sea the South China Sea and the Philippine Sea This consult this large and consolidated force can impose their version of security and Stability I Don't see China is going on the war path I don't see them as going from there to oh now we're gonna take Japan now We're gonna take South Korea now. We're gonna take the Philippines. I don't see them doing that They want trade they want security but the prerequisites that they have for what they per- they will perceive to be a security and stability will require a number of acquisitions: one, the acquisition of Taiwan; and two, the prestige and power of being the dominant power in the region and having their military have the final say in conflicts in their neighborhood. That. Is What we should look for in the post Taiwan phase um, Because again, I want to stress that China does want peace They just want the peace where they are the dominant force not someone else and they will shatter the peace that we have now to acquire the secure peace that they seek Secure as defined by Chinese needs They do not want other people's warships sailing through the, Chi- the South China Sea um, They want their warships sailing through the South China Sea Now they can't subjugate Chi- uh, India or Japan they know this and probably accept that Japan's Navy is never gonna leave them alone um, but so long as China is the dominant naval force in the region, then that'll be acceptable. They can accept that. The Chinese will also be likely to accept having to compete with India for influence in South Asia, Indochina, and eventually the Middle East as well. Especially as India, uh, in response to China's rise to this position as a juggernaut uh, india is going to get more assertive for its own needs and its own interests so china accepting those two uh, they'll know that they can't do anything really to change those two realities they they can they can work around them but they can't subjugate india and japan so they just have to deal with the fact that those two are always going to be in semi-opposition If not overt opposition to whatever China does China knows this and They know they can't do too much to change that but what they can do however is shape the peace and the nature of the security in their region around them and their military as to guarantee them access to their colonies and it's that point that made me have to explain uh, the strategic importance of the waters around China. Why does China get belligerent? Why can't they just leave Taiwan alone? Why, why are they building islands in the South China Sea? Why are, they, why are they so belligerent? Why are they building up such a large naval force? Why are they doing all these things? Why do they have the Belt and Road? Uh, well, not so much the Belt and Road, but why do they have these String of Pearls? Why do they have all these things in place if they're not going to go anywhere? The answer is that they are going to go somewhere. And that is to East Africa. They're going to go to East Africa. But it's a very, very long way from East Africa to China. And the closer you get to China, the more sensitive... The region becomes because you have a lot more players, especially when you get past these Straits of Malacca You have a whole bunch of neighbors there you have a and due to the, the Situation in the South China Sea you have a whole bunch of people who have decided to sail their warships there and China is very much unappreciative of that so We they want control over this region. They want it to be recognized that they have control over this region As to provide them that security that we talked about. China does want to trade with its neighbors. And they do want to trade with it. Everyone in the region is okay with trade. They agreed to ASEAN. They agreed to RCEP. But they don't want to be Chinese provinces. So the Chinese also know this. That won't stop them from trying to exert influence there. But they know that they'll have to contend with that basically forever. Although I do see China as having the potential to continue being the great trading nation of the 21st century. Um, But while they do want peace in their region, and while they'll shatter the peace we have now to assert a new peace centered around them... And they will do their utmost to maintain that peace, that new peace. And they'll probably do their best to be responsible with their neighbors and how they interact with them following the acquisition of Taiwan. Um, you know, for the sake of trade, mind you, for the sake of trade and for the sake of their exports. While they will be a very peculiar regional power and regional hegemon to watch their aging demographies and the expense that will come for carrying for lots of elderly people um, will make consumption-led growth in China hard to come by. Um, For those who don't know, when you have a demography that has more elderly than adults and more adults than children, you have a very high expense because you have to take care of all those elderly people. You're talking medical bills, pensions. And if you don't have a lot of young people, young people consume and give you that domestic market. When you have the inversion, where you have more elderly than adults and more adults than children, you become dependent on exports and lots of them, even more than you are now when you have fewer elderly than adults, but more adults than children, which is where China and a lot of the developed world is right now so everyone's a lot of people are really dependent on exports which china is one of them but as we move forward and as the demography fully inverts to the point where you again have more elderly than adults and more adults than children you'll see countries around the world become Way, way, way more dependent on exports, just not for growth, but to maintain their relative position on the economic ladder. And China, having a population of a billion and a half people, is going to need a lot more exports than other countries will. And uh, I I mean a lot. Germany has a little over 80 million people. They're going to go through this same inversion, but it takes significantly less exports to pay for the, that population than it will for a country that has uh almost twice I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Almost 20 times the population of Germany. It's going to take almost it's going to take a lot more exports. So then, where will China get the market for that? Well, they get it. Because the assumption made by those who see these demographies, uh, and Peter is one of Peter Zion is one of them, is that these inversion of democracy fees will just kill the countries. Uh, uh, it can, from the economic side and then beyond. But, I see a slim chance... A very, a very narrow route out of that collapse, and that is exports. A lot of it, but then the question becomes, where will you get it? Because um, exports for a lot of countries who are going to go through this same inversion at the same time are going to all be very, very dependent on exports and making sure that they can export as much of their produ- as much as what they produce as they can. To the exclusion of other countries, if necessary. So, exports become valuable and vital to the survival of economies around the world. Not for growth, but for survival. Trade is going to go from being mutually beneficial to a zero-sum game. And that means mercantilism will make a shocking comeback. And... What better way to maximize your exports in an in an environment like that than to secure a guaranteed market for those exports or I guess you should say colonies for those exports. Now, when I say colonies, don't think colonization in the United States of America or Canada or Australia where you had large numbers of people settling uh, large numbers of settlers who moved over to live there, in the places that they were colonizing. No, 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 no. not that sort of colony. Think more along the lines of the European colonies in Africa, where it was more territorial acquisitions, seizing of trade routes, captive markets, and ensuring access to resources. That's the sort of colonies we're looking at. And it's important to keep in mind That China is also not going to be the only player on the block. France is right behind them. Spain and Portugal are on the move again in their former African colonies. We talked about Spain in Morocco. We talk every now and then about Portugal getting into Mozambique and Angola. Turkey is already in Libya, one of its former territories in Africa. And in the event that Kanzuk becomes a reality, you'll have a very large country which, due to the aging demographies in all of its constituent parts, uh, so that's Canada, Australia, and Britain, but surprisingly not New Zealand, that block will have the same problem as everyone else, except they'll be bigger. So we're going to move into an era where you're going to have major countries and major developed economies who have a chronic dependence on mass exports in order to pay for their retirees and the pension funds and the medical bills. So how do you pay for that? How do you, how do you get the exports necessary for that? You need a market? Preferably a captive market. That means colonies. China Is ahead of the game in that area France is right behind them they have military occupation of a lot of West Africa and potentially Algeria as well we talked about that a minute ago but China on the economic side of things is already ahead of everyone else they have the Belt and Road uh, the projects that are being done in East Africa and even in Congo And I did the math, and it's almost 300 million people uh, that would form the basis of the consumer market, the captive consumer market that the Chinese may come to rely on for their economy. And I mean rely on heavily, because they can do trade with their neighbors. Um, As far as I know, China's neighbors, minus South Korea and Japan... They all have pretty positive demographies, which is where you have more young people than adults and more adults than elderly. So normal demographies, which means large consumer markets, China can lean on its neighbors for trade and then whatever it can't get out of mutually beneficial trade with its neighbors in ASEAN and RCEP, they can lean on. Almost 300 million people in their captive market in Africa. And as it becomes more and more prevalent, the dependence on exports, um, you will see countries start to move those military assets into Africa. And by those countries, I mean you're going to see China move its military into Africa. And France, who already has its military in Africa. Turkey, who already has its military in Africa. They're going to move their commercial interests into africa uh and follow china China's going to follow them militarily they're going to follow china economically and you'll have very clear and defined spheres of influence as it used to be understood not sort of the modern connotation we have right now where it's consensual everywhere um but more sort of the back in the day type sphere of influence where you just walk in take land and this is mine now it doesn't matter if the locals buy into it they don't get a say that's what we may see moving forward just out of a matter of national self-interest and survival because these countries are going to be dependent on exports and the countries that have the military capability to do something about it to secure a captive market will go out and they will get those captive markets. China's in the lead. They already have the market. They're just going to deploy the troops to secure it. France has the troops to secure it, but they need the economic development to get that economic side of the deal. Turkey is in a similar boat with Libya and probably will move into Egypt as well. Egypt has 100 million people. I see Turkey making moves on Egypt when this happens, but for different reasons. Turkey doesn't necessarily, Turkey doesn't have an aging demography. They have a pretty decent young demography, so it'll be more strategic rather than economic need. So three different pillars of this scramble for Africa, those who are, have aging demographies and need to inject economy into their African holdings and China who already has economic holdings in Africa, who will inject their military there to protect it, and it'll be backed up by the force of their navy. There will also be uh, the Third British Empire, who, in the event that it comes into being, they'll also make moves in Africa. And should it come into being, because that's still the if, it still has to become a thing, Kanzuk, but should it come into being... Nigeria, a country of almost 300 million people, will be at the top of their hit list. Ladies and gentlemen, we are witnessing the early stages of the second scramble for Africa. It's going to start off all nice and cute and cuddly, and it'll probably get just as brutal as the last one was. And I imagine Ethiopia will still be able to fight for its independence as well, so We'll we'll see how everything goes But we're witnessing something huge uh, It's in the very 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 early stages just like the Cold War with, with India and China But we're witnessing it And while I can speculate to the best of my ability on how we're seeing it start ultimately, this is going to be such a long-term thing And so far out, it's going to go with so many different players interacting with one another in this dynamic flow of cause and effect that ultimately I have no clue how this all ends. I can lay out this general spheres of influence that I see now, but those could change dramatically. But that is just part of the fun. Just a part of the fun. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Ah, Everyone's talking about Afghanistan, but we like to speculate on how the world is changing. And we get to have fun watching that change together. Now I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to this week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.